This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's become nearly cliche in defense circles that the near military peers of the United States are more than near. We're all neck and neck. Discussions of getting back to U.S. superiority all include the need for a more digital approach, a digital transformation. At the center of that discussion, you find the Defense Department's vision for a new network known as Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. My next guest has some ideas for JADC2. He's the former Deputy Air Force Chief Information Officer, now a Managing Director at Accenture Federal, Bill Marion. Bill, good to have you on. Good to see you again, Tom. And good to know you're up to your old tricks just from the commercial side as opposed to the government side, but kind of all oars pulling in the same direction here. And just talk for a minute about how a network can be or should be considered as strategic a piece of defense as the new bomber coming along or something like that. When I describe a network, it's a network of capabilities, not as much the what we traditionally have called the network of you know, router switches and hubs that just connect us at the lowest level, right? It's the network we call connecting your cloud ecosystem, your digital platforms, your talent ecosystem, frankly, is part of that network, your core network. So whether that's a 5G, a satellite constellation, it's really how you orchestrate. I mean, to me, JADC2 is this master orchestration of these core service capabilities across a complete portfolio. That's a great thing, but it's also the risk of JADC2. How do you orchestrate a very complex system of systems approach? And do you get the sense that they are developing? I mean, there's a central JADC2 office, but then each armed service has its own office to make networks that are compatible with the architecture of JADC2. So a lot of moving parts. Do you sense that they are avoiding building something monolithic that would be obsolete by the time they field it? I do think they're staying away from the monolithic. I mean, you see the efforts like Cloud One and Platform One and ECMA and Army-led Software Factory. These are all very agile-focused, decomposable, yet integrated elements of a bigger system. So I, I do think we're making some significant progress there. You know, we're probably going to some challenges, but I think there's some challenges of how you bring the specific services together into a holistic approach. So I think the building blocks are going in the right direction, but there's some fundamental light switch flips that we need to do to really improve that interoperability. We've not yet fully gotten the full scope of true joint all domain. There've really been pockets. These exercises have been successful. I think they're bringing great mission capability forward, but we just haven't really gotten to the full orchestration, I think, across all the services yet. Got it. And you have postulated the idea of a living system that is JADC2. And what do you mean by that? Frankly, it goes back to the, I call it the softer dimensions of success in IT. I mean, we see this time and time again in our client practices, human-centered design, leveraging your talent, bringing a user experience, what I call a mission experience to bear. It's often very easy to buy a platform. It's easy to buy a digital capability. The hard part is all the softer dimensions of processes and integration and flows, and I call them playbooks and accelerators. When you talk about living systems, it's actually putting that living dimension to a very binary system, right? It's not just the network. It's not just the digital platform. It's actually how you leverage the tools. If your people aren't equipped to use them, if the processes aren't there to actually accelerate them, if you're not really using best practices for an industry to really gain the benefits that the the investments have been there, you really don't have a full living system. You don't have the accelerators that really bring it to bear at the speeds that we need to against our adversaries. We're speaking with Bill Marion. He's Managing Director at Accenture Federal Services, former Air Force Deputy CIO. And ultimately, the purpose of this in the most basic sense is to move bits from here to there. 
And so there's a lot of software, as you say, on top of this. The whole expression of what is expected for it philosophically is software. But underneath that, there is hardware and there's protocols and so on. And so the problem then, and I'm asking this as a question, is you need hardware. You need to connect wires ultimately. But then that becomes obsolete also at some point. The protocols change or the transport mechanisms and media change. And so how do you manage a project long term where you've got really two layers of it that are constantly in flux? One is the software and services you provide, but then you really need that plumbing underneath to be up to date also over time. Right. I think that the core challenge there, that, and this is a department issue, is I'll call it the lack of what we would call solution architects. The folks that can really take these decomposable technical capabilities. So we have cloud experts, we have digital platform experts, we have ERP experts, but those folks that really sit above that level that can take these individual silos that are interoperable, we just don't necessarily weave them together well. And so that's a talent issue. That's an investment issue. One of the things I saw in my career um, prior to Accenture was we really don't do a good job funding those elements of people and developing those. And those are your top tier folks in your organization. Certainly in Accenture, we invest heavily in that level of mindset. Things like the CRs and the budget challenges, those are the people that typically get cut first because the silos are delivering, right? So keep delivering, keep delivering, but we cut from these solution architects, these people that actually bring the full in in integration together. So, I mean, if there was a budgetary thing that I I had a day with, with that would be a big focus of the talent management and the development and the resourcing and really the retention of that skilled labor because we have a lot of technical capabilities. We have a lot of great air platforms. What ultimately wins wars is how you bring the fight together, not whether we have the best tanker, whether we have the best fighter, or whether we have the best ISR. It's about how we do, again, all domain command and control. And underneath that all, as you write, is the acquisition system, which has to be equally quick and agile. And that hasn't always been the case in everything <laughs> that the DOD buys. Absolutely. And I think there's Again, there's been substantial movement forward using OTAs, SIPRs, other tools in the toolbox. I think the toolbox have expanded. I I definitely, again, see at these large-scale initiatives, we have not figured that out yet. Things are better. I'm not about to say they're not better. I I give a lot of the acquisition leads uh, credit for that. Um, Like in the Air Force side, Dr. Roper, Costello, some of those folks in that ecosystem but there's still a cultural piece below that level of how you deliver in an agile construct. We have several pretty large DOD agile programs. We still get reverted back to, you know, administrative checking of reports and those kind of things, which really aren't tenants of agile, right? It's, it's understanding you're only going to get 80, 90%, but you're going to deliver faster, better, leaner. So some of those things are still areas for improvement inside the government. And the implication of fast, agile scrums and developing in stages like that implies that there is a great deal of interaction with the people that are going to live with the resulting system. So it sounds like you're saying that there needs to be the warfighters literally involved in each module because they're the ones that have to actually operate it. You know, think of the forces massing, you know, in case something happens in Russia, for example. You know, there's a real example of where some type of network would need to enable them. Absolutely. And we have multiple clients that are engaging like that now, which is very refreshing because, again, that gets back to the living systems. Like, how do you get the human dimension? Because at the, at the end of the day, that warfighter is going to have to use that tool. It's not this core 50-page requirements document that was created five years prior, right? So I do see good traction there. 
what I'm saying is there's a there's a larger cultural piece of just how you maneuver through that agile framework that still has got some maturation to do. But I definitely see uh, defense clients today starting to, to leverage more of the agile constructs. And we really enforce it as a practice. And I know some of our competitors do as well, because it's just so fundamental to actually, you know, getting things right, frankly. You know that the five-year builder requirement process is antiquated after year one, and you still spend four more years working the requirements document. So it's just a failed model. I think we're past that, but we still got, I would say there's probably 40% of the market that is doing agile constructs. We've still got some room to go. Sure. And a final question on the recommendation you have on the long list here, embrace human-centered design. I think you mentioned that briefly, but that's not just a nice thing with a good-looking interface, (laughs) but really something that people in stressful situations can get what they want out of without dealing with the interface itself. Absolutely. And and there's really two, I I kind of put them in two dimensions. The human-centered design, there's also that part of agile, right? How do you work with the warfighter. How do you work with that airman, guardian, seaman, whatever the case may be, to imagine what that journey looks like, what what that system should, how it should operate in a contested environment. Then you have the other element of, again, how that system actually is executed, how you use agile concepts to really improve the, the look and feel. And again, you're trying to take that friction out. And so you only get friction out, not by paper documentation requirements, you get that friction out by actually iterating with the user, iterating in these HCD sessions. And again, that could be either from a requirement perspective before the system's built or as it's being delivered and modernized through the years. You certainly don't want to get in this deliver and forget. That's another concept. We still have some room to go, right? We still do the, hey, we went IOC and we're done. All right. Bill Marion is Managing Director at Accenture Federal Services and a former Air Force Deputy CIO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to his blog post about all of this at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe a hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.